Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. Photographic images in pathology continue to be more widely utilized, and this can be for research, for teaching, or just for general specimen documentation. This documentation is even more important in a forensic setting. My guest today is forensic photographer Nikki Johnson. Today, we're going to talk about how Nikki became a photographer and some of her early work, then how she got into the forensic field, how she teamed up with Dr. Marianne Hamill to create Death Under Glass, and her current unseen exhibit at the Mütter Museum. All right, here's Nikki Johnson. Can you tell me how you how you first uh, became interested in art? Sure. Uh, I became interested in art because I, one of my early memories in childhood were definitely of a you know, a lot of photos being taken, family photos. And I had an uncle who worked for Polaroid. He lived in Boston and he was working with Polaroid. So he would sweep into town maybe every five years with a bag of cameras that were amazing. Like they were whatever the next level of cameras that are, you know, above a one step from the seventies that were out there. He had like just the best versions of them, probably stuff that wasn't even on the market or weren't wasn't on the market yet at that time period so it was amazing just to see to see those in action and of course being a polaroid it makes everything look you know instant and uh the results so it it was i think i also kind of got pressed into being the family photographer whenever there was an event you know with the little you know plastic cameras and things so Mm -hmm. i always i kind of just started out in it that way and and the part of mississippi that i'm in our school system did not have art classes per se like real art classes so i only when i got into college was i even able to take like a proper art class you know other than like after school, private lessons, stuff like that. So it was something I was always interested in. And when I finally got a chance to do it, I just kind of went for it. Okay. Now these cameras and things that your uncle had, did you kind of always have one of them with you as you were just kind of walking around and doing things as a kid? Well, yeah, every now and then. And in fact, um, my, uh, I had asked my mother this uh, before she passed away. I was looking at photos of my grandfather. He passed away when I was probably five or six and the photo angles are very low. And I said, who shot this? And she said, oh, you did. And I was like, really? <laughs> I said, why would I, you know, she said, I was too upset. I wanted photos. And uh, so there are these photos of him at rest. And But the angle was so low. I was like, what? Who shot this? And so I guess that was my earliest post, post-mortem photo experience <laughs> at that time oh, wow. period. <laughs> yeah. A bit of uh, foreshadowing <laughs> of your later career. <laughs> Yep, and here I am today. Right. <laughs> am today. Um, so, like, how old were you at, around at that time? I, I had to have been about five, five or six. So I was a kid. Okay. Was a kid. Yeah. Wow. All right. Now, go, going into school then, and you went on to study fine arts in college. Yes, yes. Okay. All right. How did you decide that was going to be what uh, your major? I was taking those classes as kind of an intro, and I was, meanwhile, telling my mother, like, oh, yeah, this is just something I'm going to get out of my system, and I knew I wasn't, but uh, I was going to be an English major at that point, and I just kind of kept going. I took them, and I loved those classes so much, and I loved the art community, that um, because a lot of people were in the same boat, like they maybe they hadn't had many art classes, but it became almost like a family, that it was a really great unit of people at that school. And uh, it was just incredible. It's incredible. It's, those are some of the best years of my life, of my college life were in Mississippi. 
Mississippi University for Women. Mm. And there, there were men as well, but they just wouldn't change the name. It was very dramatic. <laughs> oh, I, okay. That's yeah. interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Now, and this was fine art, so it wasn't just photography. Like, what other types of art did you did you learn? Uh, painting and drawing, printmaking. Um, they had we had a full darkroom setup, which was great, but they just didn't have uh, they didn't have a photography major available at that time period. So I took as many. I have like a concentration in it, like an unofficial concentration in photography. And so I just took as much of it as I possibly could. I couldn't be without a darkroom at that time period. And then I got in, I ended up going into graduate school at RIT, Rochester Institute of Technology, uh, about, a, about maybe five or six months after I got out of college. Actually, maybe the next, the following year, the following year, 95. Okay. And that was in again in fine arts with a focus on photography uh, in at RIT it was photography yeah yep fine. it was fine art photography but it was photography yep okay and, mm-hmm. and at, by this point you just, you decided this was going to be the career for you yes I was in I was definitely in and RIT at that time period was incredible it was it's still I'm sure it's still great but it was everything it was financed by fully very heavily financed by Kodak, actually, and had a great, you know, it was a five-story building devoted to just photography with chemicals on tap, dark tons of dark rooms. I think one of the guy, one of the uh, people who was involved in the OJ trial, the photo expert, um, Andrew David Hazy, I believe his first name was Andrew. I, I'm probably getting it wrong, but his last name was David Hazy. He was the person who verified that they were the Bruno Mali shoes. Mm, he was okay. one of the professors there. So it was it was just a photo heaven. It really was. Now you said that was mostly financed by Kodak. Did your uncle have a problem with that being a Polaroid guy? I don't think so. I don't think so. But um, you know, it's more the merrier. <laughs> yeah. Right. I, yeah. Okay. Now before we get into your forensic photography work, I want to talk about some of the work the work that you've done sort of outside of that, which you continue to do to this day. But Mm -hmm. so early on getting out of school, it it seems like it would be difficult to kind of break into the photography world. So how how did that happen for you? I ended up moving to New York, uh, to New York city. And I was lucky enough to be moving with a, with someone that I knew who had, um, you know, an uncle and we had, you know, we were able to get a place in, the East Village. And so we lived there for a while together. And I just met all these dynamic people. Because the East Village was kind of, it was 1998 at that point period. So it was still kind of a little bit underground. It wasn't as gentrified as it is now. And so I just was dropping off my book at, you know, my portfolio at different places. I And just trying to break in. And that was pretty tough. And I just took whatever little office jobs temporarily I could just to get by. And then I was, you know, working for a team tour that would go to England for about six weeks every year in the summer. So I was just all over the place. I was doing whatever I could. And I started working for a gallery and I, you know, I met more people in the art scene that way as well. I would shoot their their shows and their events. It was called a gathering of the tribes. And it was ironically run by a man who was a writer who had gone blind named Steve Cannon. So, you know, that was also great because we would, Steve had this great art space and, you know, you described to him what was, what the art was and things like that. And it was just an amazing, I I slowly just broke in and and met people and, 
and it really uh, opened up my world. And I met a lot of unusual people and photographed a lot of unusual events like vampire parties and, you oh, know. Really? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it, and, and underground parties and, and all kinds of, like, far out things. Met, you know, met a lot of intriguing people. And so, yeah, that I actually self-published a book of of a few of those, of several of those uh, events and people. I wanted to be the next Diane Arbus or the next uh, Man Golden, and that's what that's what I was going for, photographing people in their own environments. So, mm-hmm. it's a, if it's a vampire party at three a.m., so be it, <laughs> you know. <laughs> okay. And then go to work the next day, you know. When I did get my job working in forensics, so it it was it was fun. Those are some great days. What would you say was your kind of your first big, big break, I guess, into the photography world? I would say one of the first big breaks was I, you know, getting a getting a couple of different shows going on and just kind of showing work. And then, you know, as you show work, you meet more people, you meet more people, you meet more people. And, you know, one series or one photo, you show it to another person and they're like, okay, great. And it opens a door to a whole other subculture, to a whole other set of people and just gaining people's trust and then being Southern and always asking like, hey, may I take your picture? That actually went a long way uh, with a lot of people. Whereas, you know, it was still more of the, it was less digital at that point. So it's like, of course, you've got this big camera. Everybody sees you there. They're, you know, you kind of have to interact with people a bit more and ingratiate yourself. So uh, it, it was it was good. I think the big break is, I think I'm still waiting for that big break, honestly. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still waiting. But um, I, I, I think it's a series of, of a, little, a bunch of little breaks. I think, I think definitely. That's, uh, that's how I would say it. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. All right. Mm-hmm. Was there ever a point where you kind of questioned what you were doing? Like, like, oh, you know, maybe this isn't going to work out and I should look for something else. Did that happen to you? I did. I, it actually did because it actually was 9-11. I wasn't working. I had been working for an art gallery and I'd, I'd, I'd taken, I'd had a week off and I came back and I went to the to the art opening you know i was supposed to be the assistant for the gallerist and she hadn't called me back and i went there and i found that she'd gotten an intern so i'd lost that job and a few you know about a week before 9 11 and when it happened that morning i got a call from a friend who was a freelance photographer that was still in rochester and he said look something has happened maybe you know why don't you just go down there and see what's going on and uh, I'm going to come down there. It looks like this is really huge. And so I started walking. I, I left these, you know, where I lived was maybe about, oh, gosh, I've made it about as far as Chinatown, going, just walking down that way before the buildings actually fell. And so I saw it, which was really horrifying. And I thought, yeah. you know, I, and I thought to myself, what, you know, what is this? And there were a lot of, everyone was taking pictures, but I was like, I, I just had kind of a weird crisis of, of of um faith of like i want to help people i don't know is this helping people it was just, it's, it just felt like a, it felt really weird for me and you know it just it felt it was a real a really uh intense moment to watch that and so i i have some photos from that time period but i kind of you know at, at once things got even more intense i just kind of pulled back and and for a long time i was kicking myself like oh i should have 
tried to just wait in there and get more photos and just try to help people and volunteer and things like that. But, and I, and I did, you know, where I could after the fact, but I couldn't, you know, and then there were photo people who were photographing, they were doing selfies before even the iPhones were out. People were, you know, doing selfies of themselves, the buildings in the background. That, that just, that bothered oh, wow. me. Ethically, yeah. it really bothered me. And I, and for a while I stopped shooting. I was like, what is this? What is this? This is a, it's just too much. And uh, the emotions were very high in the city. So I just, for a while, I, for a few months, I just didn't, I just didn't shoot anything. I was like, this is the biggest thing that's ever happened. And I have maybe a handful of photos of it. And I just, it, it's, it's so tragic and, and so unbearable that I don't know, if, could I even have photographed much more of it? So yeah, I did stop for a little bit. Okay. Yeah. I understand. That, that actually yeah. makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, yeah. So how long were you working as a photographer before you got involved with forensics? I was working, oh gosh, I was working until it was about maybe about seven years, seven years. And then I finally, I was at an office job that I was taking just so I could have, you know, some steady income coming in. And all of us, everyone who worked at that office was doing something. This was their get money job, you know, they're just, and it wasn't even that much money. But, you know, the people, there were singers, there were actresses, there were all kinds of people there. And so what we would do is we would trade one ads with each other. And so I was the person who always had true crime books and like, you know, Stephen King and all kinds of other things and, you know, and brought photography books into work. So everybody knew kind of my taste and, you know, all these things. And they were and someone tapped me on the shoulder one day and said, hey, you know, this looks like something for you. And they dropped this clipping from, it was either the New York Post or the New York Daily News. I'm not sure which one. I don't even remember. But I do still have the original clipping. And it was a, it was advertisement for the job. And they said, I, you know, and, and basically they wanted X amount of years of photography. If you had mortuary experience, that was one thing. If not, like, fine. And this was before more of the boom in, in interest in true crime and forensics that's happening now, that has happened since then. So I just said, you know, I just threw my hat in the ring. I said, okay, I'll try it. At least I figured at least I'd get the interview and get to see what the inside of the place would be like. And uh, I actually ended up getting the job. Wow. Okay. Wow. Was, was there additional training that was involved? It, it's basically, it was sink or swim because it's like, they were like, we want a photographer. We can tell you what to shoot, but can you do it? That's more, more or less what it was. It's that, you know, it's, it's, can you go into this environment? Can you actually produce the, the photos to the level we want, but can you actually do it consistently and, and actually handle the subject matter? And so okay. that's, yeah. So yeah, many of most of us have not had, did not have an, any kind of forensic additional background. It's like we worked, we came as photographers and that's what we remain, I guess, to this day. Mm -hmm. Was it difficult to get used to that environment? In some ways, yes, but in it's but one of the things is that media makes it seem like something that it's not, and because it's like yeah. it's bright, it's surgical lighting. You're surrounded by people. It's not two a.m. It's not nobody's eating pizza, you know, over the, <laughs> over the cases or anything like that. Right. <laughs> so it's like um, it's it's so much it's 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 and it's such a team effort that you're not alone. So it's easier to kind of get into what you're doing. Um, it's, it's, it's really good, you know, cause you know, this from working, it's like, everybody assumes that we're 
you know, it's late, it's 2 a.m., it's raining, you know, it's, mm-hmm. <laughs> we're right. all outside, you know, they think we're, it's, it's a whole different thing from what we're doing. You know, you mentioned kind of the TV aspect. And mm-hmm. so let's, maybe we can kind of dispel some, some myths, myths <laughs> there that come from TV, because I know you're not, you know, crawling around under cars and happen to find a, you know, a bullet casing or something like that. Or like you said, it's not, you know, dark and in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. So can we kind of, is there sort of like a, for, for the forensic photographer, when you come to a scene, is there kind of a standard approach or a method that you, that you use? Well, this is the thing at our office, we have investigators. So I, I think I've worked maybe only a couple of scenes ever like, and that was to fill in for something that they okay. needed. But for the most part, I do autopsy photography. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's almost most of what I do. Maybe occasionally a live consult every now and then uh, if the doctor needs something additional. But yeah, mostly autopsies. Okay. So what's the standard kind of procedure for photographs in an autopsy? For an autopsy, it's like so we have all of our cases, uh, you know, that are, they triage everything for the day and uh, they're assigned to doctors. And so we, our autopsies are happening often, you know, four or five at the same time. And so we, I, dip between all the different ones and photograph them. Everything from when the decedent is first, you know, the bag is first, the pouch is first opened until the end of the, of their autopsies and just continually go through this all day. And I photograph their clothing, I photograph any weapons if they happen to come in, uh, personal property, things like that. Okay. How many, how many photographs do you think you would take in a, in a typical autopsy? It varies. If it's something with a lot of trauma, I could take, a, you know, easily a hundred or so. I mean, but that's also how I shoot. Like some people shoot with a lot more, a lot less, or they could, you know, they, I, that's personally, I just, I, I like to shoot a lot and I, I know I have a tendency to overshoot because that's just, that's just me. <laughs> mm-hmm. I like to get it from all angles, everything. Mm-hmm. I suppose it's one of those things where it's probably better to have too many than not enough. I think so. I, I think so. And I just want to make sure I got it. Whatever it is, I want to make sure it's there. Okay. Now, when you got into forensic ph- photography, did you did you enjoy it right away or did that take some getting used to? I enjoyed it. I actually, it, it did take a little bit of getting used to, but it was the people that I was around that I really enjoyed just talking to them and asking them what it was like, what, you know, what it was like to, and the solidarity that's there. That's kind of an unofficial solidarity among all of us you know we we have everybody has their moments but at the end of the day like the case that's in front the cases that are in front of us are the most important thing and it's why we're there and so that's what kind of kept me going you know even in the tough times when it was really difficult or when i had to go to you know we had we had several offices so we you know you go to this one this one this one i do three or four different ones a week um, the, the trip was, you know, the commuting was very difficult because I don't have a car, but um, getting there was always worth it. And so that just, it, that kind of worked out for me and just meeting, just, just really finding like a, a steady place, but, it, but no day is the same because the cases are never the same. A while, a while back, I had Dr. Marianne Hamill on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, the two of you together make up the Death Under Glass, um, the, the Instagram page and the website, and you've had an exhibit as well. 
And we kind of got her take on how that all started. So uh, I'm curious to get the story from your point of view. Oh, how'd, yeah. you, how'd, how'd you meet Dr. Hamill? I met her through work and she was just this incredible person. And we would be talking, you know, while we're working and she came up with this amazing idea. One day she just said this, she's like, Oh, you know, I just love the look of histology slides. And I really feel like they're comparable with modern art. What do you think? And I was like, Oh, you know, show me, show me some of what you, what you mean. And, 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 uh, and we just, we just began this art conversation that kept going and going and going. And, and it, you know, it, exploded into death under glass like the you know the art series that you know basically blowing up these slides into something that they do look like jazzy abstract paintings i mean they really do but to see to show that they are like the you know something that originates from the inside of um of, of decedents that she has worked on in other offices it's like it's incredible and and samples of, of tissues that she's collected it's, it's absolutely incredible and to show people, it's, it's great and it's educational, but it's so, it's something that's not going to terrify, you know, uh, maybe younger people because they're, yeah. they're just looking at basically colors and line work and a lot, there's a lot of similarities with paintings. There really are. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, I, I've had, I've, I've had conversations with a few people, kind of the, sort of the art aspect in histology and pathology and and there's there's a lot of that i think it's just the you know the shapes and the colors and all of that kind of stuff is it surprising to you how popular death under glass has become um it's i'm so i'm so happy about it i think it's great in that it educates people and it, 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 it's gone even beyond histology into all kinds of other things post-mortem photography i collect a lot of post-mortem photography books and so uh, I'm always passing them on to Mary Ann saying, hey, look at this and, you know, and this and and always, you know, going on and on about the photographers that have blown me away over the years, like Joel Peter Wicken and all those things. Um, it's just amazing. There's so many elements to it and there's so many things to explore. And since we work in the business, we want people to really see kind of more of the reality-based aspects of it. Um, I actually met a person who does prop photography for law and order once and he kept it he said oh do you shoot raw and uh, what kind of light setup do you guys use i was like bro we don't have that kind of stuff and we're and we're also it dip, we're actively you know shooting autopsies we don't we don't have like we're not going to light it like a set or anything like that and he's like isn't it dark i was like no it's not dark it's not at all it's surgical lighting right yeah. <laughs> yeah there's a misconception right there there's not you know a single light bulb like you know barely lighting the room it is like you said it's well lit yes thank goodness could you imagine a swinging light bulb and some of the things that we have to do it wouldn't oh. work out very well right <laughs> This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Nikki Johnson. We'll be right back. Labvine has recently reached 5,000 members, and they're running a Lucky Draw giveaway to celebrate. All you need to do to enter is refer a friend. So log into Labvine, click the Refer a Friend button, and enter their name and email address. Now, there is no limit to how many people you can refer, but each person has to be either a laboratory professional or someone who works in the healthcare field. And if you're not already a LabVine member, you can follow the link in the show notes to sign up and check out some of the great courses that they have to offer. Dress Med has been designing and manufacturing high-quality scrubs since 1980. 
The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress Ahmed by using the link in the show notes. You can sign up for their loyalty program for free and earn special offers and discounts. Now back to Nikki Johnson on the People of Pathology podcast. Okay. Now, when it comes to the Death Under Glass Instagram page mm-hmm. and the things that you that are posted there, is that mm-hmm. kind of the two of you together or how, like... How does that work? Who decides what, what goes up there? Marianne's more of the driving force behind that because she's got a bit more kind of time and flexibility than I do. She works constantly and she's doing all these things, but she's got a wonderful, beautiful like combination of science and snark and energy that you just can't replicate. She'll ask me for certain, you know, about for suggestions on certain things or what do I think about certain things. And I'll pitch suggestions at her, but she's more like the driving force between behind a lot of the, the writing and uh, some of the, the mm. concepts there. And I'll photograph things for them from time to time or I'll, or I'll pitch something because I, I, I'm an insomniac. So at 3 a.m. I'll be looking and I'll send her something and say, hey, what do you think about this? Or what do you think about this proposed? Or is this too weird? Or, you know, and uh She'll wake up in a few hours and get right back to me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. Yeah. yeah, It it seems like the two of you do have the kind of similar personalities. That that probably helps a lot. Oh, yes. Definitely. Definitely. Wonderful person to work with. Absolutely wonderful. Yeah. She's great. All right. So one one of the main things then that, that I want to talk about for probably most of the the rest of the time is your unseen exhibit at, yes. at the at the Muda Museum. Okay. So first of all, can you tell me what is the, what is this exhibit? What what is it about? Well, unseen is basically a, a chance to photographically capture the. It still it still feels like a sliver, just a sliver of the like I would say about ninety five percent of the things that are in the museum are not on display. And so this is a chance to delve into the stacks and into some of the back rooms and to kind of expand uh, the viewers, uh, you know, trip into sort of the other aspects of the museum that nobody would get to see unless they actually worked there or they, you know, spent time there. I mean, there were even parts that the people who worked there hadn't even seen before. And so after, as soon as the Death Under Glass uh, exhibition of the Histology Slides ended, um, I told them, like, hey, if you ever need any photos of anything, I will happily come from New York to Philly on my own time to photograph it. No problem. Volunteer, whatever you need. And so I would do this, you know, every now and then periodically over the years. And I had pitched on scene to them a while back, but they were busy with a lot of other projects. And then suddenly uh, last year, uh, around maybe around this time, they said, you know what? We have some space. We'd like to ex- we explore it, but it has to happen fairly you know fairly soon and so for quite a bit of time i you know i used some of the images i'd shot before and then like gradually they were like okay let's explore this room let's explore this room and it it became uh, it blew up into something much larger and even the photos that i have on display are still like a sliver of what i even was able what i shot for the museum so so this is kind of an unseen unseen uh, relics and uh aspects of the museum unseen rooms unseen specimens mm-hmm. things like that unseen yeah places. yeah it's interesting that there are so many so much of the collection that is not on display I, I didn't realize there was that much more 
Yes, yes. Anna Doty was my guide. She was my guide and almost spiritual advisor as to where to go and what there is. And and, and the rest of the Mooder staff is incredible. They they it was like a guided tour of, of that was beyond my imagination. I mean, the stacks alone is like six about five or six floors of anything you could imagine, whether it's doctor's bags that have been donated to a taxidermied snake I, I finally found um, in one of the shelves to just absolutely anything, anything, x-rays, um, boxes full of, of brains preserved in loose sight, like absolutely anything you could imagine, tons of wax, uh, of wax models. It's, it's incredible. You mentioned the stacks uh, that mm-hmm. there's like three rooms that you kind of really concentrated on and the, the stacks is right. one. Then there's the wet mm-hmm. room and the bone room. And I think yes. th- those last two are probably self-explanatory, but w- uh-huh. what is the stacks? Do you know why it's called that? The stacks is that it's, it's, it's a collection of things that have been basically, you know, kind of pulled into the museum. People would send things periodically, like say if they had a doctor in the family who passed away, they'd send some of their medical collections, private things, um, things that have been, you know, kind of absorbed into the museum from various sources, from from colleges, from from all kinds of collections that have now been, you know, been contributed and they needed a, a safe place to go. Some of the things that come to the wet room, I think it's the same situation. They're, they're bequeathed to, to the motor. And so it's just absolutely anything you could imagine. The things that, and I think even they have more things that, you know, over many, many, many decades that they're still cataloging what that they have. So it's just like an endless collection of books and ephemera and taxidermy and anything, anything you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Private mm-hmm. collections that have been absorbed into the museum over time. Okay. Was this your your idea to kind of concentrate on these three rooms or was it, did someone from the museum have that? Well, I, I think it was, uh, it was more, it was more, they were the ones that were more visually dynamic. And I would, as you know, each day would, of shooting would be on my time off from my job. So I would just kind of concentrate into those and we would, they would tell us what they have available or what, you know, some of the things like in the wet room, you'd have to actually move some of the shelving around to even get to some of the specimens and samples. So everything was very time sensitive. So the, the stacks was usually something I'd reserve to the end of the day, but it was just something that kind of kept happening. I mean, I, we photographed the basement and several other things that, I, you know, we'd like to expand to a larger project. Um, they definitely interested in, um, interested in publishing something about it, but that we focused kind of on those three main rooms because that was easier for maybe the viewers to absorb everything because they were, you know, the three elements of the, of the body, the dry, the wet, and the, you know, all these other, um, the other ephemera that kind of goes with it, the reflective, you know, reflective as medical, um, you know, unusual mm-hmm. medical uh, collectibles. How much time would you say that you spent in, in each room? It varies, probably about two, two to three hours. But um, for the wet room, it's like that was a little bit 
a little bit, a lot, a lot less. Actually, I would say maybe about an hour because we tried to be very specific. There were so many things to photograph. So it's like, okay, let's retrieve these jars or this, you know, these containers and or look for these specimens in particular and then just kind of pull those out and then carry them into another room to be photographed and then put them carefully back. So a lot of that would be kind of spent in retrieving and, uh, and lighting and kind of putting them back. And which of the three rooms do you think was your was the most interesting to you, or, or I guess maybe your favorite? I like the wet room. I really do. I really enjoyed it. I okay. really did. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's it's yeah because there was just almost anything you could imagine was there, and uh, it's just it's it's everything is so beautifully organized. I and I and in the wet room and the bone room. And the stacks as well. The stacks was beautiful more from an architectural standpoint also because they have glass floors. So there's like a, there's like a smoked glass floor that you kind of walk along that doesn't it has kind of gaps between the, you know, the walkway and the, the shelves. And if you have a fear of heights, which I do, it's mm. kind of intrigue. It kind of ties into the whole feeling of being in a very dark, strange place filled with skulls. And <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you that, like. You know, mm. said it's a dark, strange place. I mean, did that did that ever? Did you ever kind of look around and go, "All right, what am I? What am I doing here in this weird place?" Yes, <laughs> yes, definitely. Because in the stacks, without without someone to kind of guide you out, and if you you know if the lights are, if you don't, you know, if you're not sure where you're going, you could actually get somewhat lost. So I would just kind of stay close and try to keep an eye on the exits. Definitely, because I from being in dark rooms for so many years, I'm not afraid of the dark. But when you're in the dark with like, you know, taxidermy rats and stuff, it's like, right. and small, you know, it's and and like, you know, in, amazingly two two real wax sculptures of like leprosy, you just don't want to bump into anything. Also, I was always afraid of dropping anything. That was my biggest fear too. I didn't want to to you know lose a lose a specimen. Now, I understand the Unseen exhibit has been incredibly popular to the point where they, they've extended the time that it's there, right? Yes, yes. It's expanded through to winter of 2022. That's amazing. I mean, for you kind of professionally, that's got, that's got to be very rewarding to, to, to have that happen. I'm, I'm blown away. It is, it's that if there's a big break for me, I think in life, I think this is it. That's, it's a dream. It's a dream from when I first visited the museum. I was just intrigued by it. And I, I I even wrote this on a post about the, you know, the calendar that uh, was, someone had gifted me their calendar years ago. I never dreamed that I'd get a chance to go there. Or then certainly, you know, I used to hang the calendar up and go, okay, I'm not even going to write in this because it's too beautiful for that, you know. And I would hope to maybe mm-hmm. one day get a shot in it and then Unseen actually is now the subject of their 2022 calendar. Right. The, the, the whole calendar is your work. I, I, yes. Yes. That's amazing. Yeah. In the, in the show notes for this episode, I'll, I'll include links to Unseen. There's a couple like short videos and definitely to the calendar so people can pick that up. Oh, great. Thanks. Yeah. And if you'd yeah. like to use a photo, please feel free, you know, whatever you need. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I saw, I, I think it's on your, your website, actually. There's a magazine article mm-hmm. and it yes. features some of your work throughout the pandemic. Yes. All right. Now, this is interesting because you, like you said, you, you're in New York, which was very hard hit, especially early on in the pandemic. 
Yeah. So, for, so first of all, I'm curious, how did how did that affect your forensics work? Uh, the volume of cases it, it increased beyond, um, you know, increased. It was it was it was really difficult. Everything just became it was it was it was a really dark time. Uh, there were people. I saw my coworkers who'd worked there in 9/11 said that this was actually much harder. It was much more difficult because. It was continuous, and since no one understood what was happening, just the you know the level of anxiety was pretty high. It was really it was very difficult for us, and it was it was it was a really strange time. That's you know it was a really strange time. Most of my friends left town, so really going to and from work was my main thing, and then it was the most probably the most exciting thing that was going to happen to me that day. I would just simply go to work, work for however long, and then just go home and that's how I ended up photographing people on the commute because it was just just you know seeing a subway during rush hour with only a handful of people in it and masked that I just started photographing what I was seeing because that was most of what I what I saw during that time period mm -hmm. okay and it from what I saw most of those photographs are in black and white yes yes yeah. why did why did you choose to do it that way I shot some of them in color, but most of them I just made it black and white because I I felt that I felt like I was documenting something that I hoped would soon pass. That it would you know we associate sometimes black and white photography with the past, mm -hmm. and I I just felt like it was something that it felt it was futuristic, but also it felt like something that of course like the Spanish flu we're returning to that over and over again. And it just was such a, a dark kind of rough time. And I felt like it, it captured the, the emotions of the time. Um, as far as working, uh, it was it was an, it was even a hardship getting to work. There was a lot of street crime at that time period and uh, in the hospital complexes. And, you know, a lot of you know people were, were were going to work and they were having to deal with being mugged, things like that, because there were so few people on the streets. And the streets were half empty. People see you going. You know, if you're out, you're usually going to. Most of the people who were out were going to work. So mm -hmm. it was it was really a, an odd time. Uh, okay. We were having food donated to us. You know, to everybody in the medical profession was getting donated food because we, you know we really couldn't go anywhere. Um, it was intense. Are you still kind of documenting the the, the pandemic in in that way now? Yes, yes, I still shoot those images from time to time, and I've just kind of been shooting them and putting them to the side of uh, this series, because I, I hope it's a series that will one day come to an end. I really do. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Do you have any plans uh, for, for something you'd like to do with that series of photographs? I would, I would love to, to show them in some way, shape, or form. I've, uh, I've put them, I've just kind of been shooting them and putting them in a, like a book. They're almost like very, almost rather personal, but I've just been putting them, you know, and printing them out and just kind of putting them to the side. And every time I think, oh, I'm done with this, then I'll see something else. Because I, I think one thing that is happening is that, you know, at least I try to photograph people, they're, you know, the humanity of what we're all going through and just the day-to-day, -day, the minutia of what is still ordinary that's left of what we're, we're experiencing right now, whether it's somebody clutching their dog, you know, while their mask is slipping or if it's, you know, 
someone who's masked next to someone who's eating pancakes, like without anything on, you know, it's just, it's kind of, it's showing that uh, the thing that the link that's tying us all together right now is, is trying to uh, survive this thing. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Okay. Now for, for anybody listening who maybe they're interested in a career as a forensic photographer, Mm -hmm. what, what kind of advice would you have for them? I would say definitely, you know, make sure that you are just forget about anything you've seen on TV or media, anything at all. Forget about it. Basically, make sure that you're, you know, understand that you're working as a team. Make sure that you're good at communicating uh, your interpersonal skills. You got to make sure, you know, you got to communicate with your assistants and the technicians and the doctor. You've got to make sure that you are willing to work long hours. I don't. I don't think I've had a regular lunch hour in a while, a few months, um, basically, because until the autopsies are done, I'm, that's that's when I'm done. And well, I'm done with that aspect of the job. You've got to understand, um, you know, learn anatomy, but also understand that you are. You have to respect the case and everyone around it but you just you know just get in shoot and then kind of step back but always be observant of everything that's going on around you and and just you know you have to be patient you have to be um perceptive you have to and you have to really apply yourself it is it's definitely so much more than just shooting a picture you have to be you have to actually you know and you have to be deadly accurate you got to get you got to get that shot so you know but in, but communication is key and that's the thing that i think most people you know need to always understand because i think everybody just especially even in watching media i think they just assume we just get out there and we shoot it and we walk away we don't touch anything and because mm-hmm. that's a, i think that's one of the number one questions i get asked it's like well you don't touch anything do you it's like of course i do i have to help with you know the you know i have to keep things keep help clean i have to do every you know do whatever i can to get you know to, to make sure that the photograph is as good as it can be like how would how would somebody try to get into the field i mean is it just like train as a photographer and then try to apply to medical examiner's offices or like how would they do that that's what they have to do to to just be a photographer apply to medical examiner's offices um there are some offices that offer internships ours does not but there are others that do and just apply yourself put yourself out there and really just be willing to work and, and work hard. Um, understand that your work is, is you know, you always be respectful to the living people and the, the decedents and just keep trying and putting yourself out there. I love it. That's that's great advice. Uh, Nikki, this has been super interesting. I, I really appreciate your time. Uh, and, and it was really fun to kind of go through your career and and sort of look back at look back at your experiences so far so nikki johnson thank you very much thank you so much dennis thank you great big thanks to nikki johnson now since we talked about death under glass here's a trailer from my interview with dr marianne hamill and then i'll be back with some final comments on this episode what was the origin of this when did you when did you come up with this idea and, and how did it sort of progress when i was a trainee uh I spent a lot of time reading slides and I noticed that often, even if the specimen was pretty grossly ugly or unattractive, 
the microscopic version of that was often beautiful, particularly with special stains. And mm. I thought it was kind of odd that no one had ever um, presented histology as art before. So I said something to Nikki, who is not only a forensic photographer, but an accomplished New York City photographer. And um, I said, you know, it would be really awesome if, if you could turn this into actual art. And she said, well, you could. So we worked together and um, what eventually happened is we ended up with a traveling exhibition of images taken through the microscope called Death Under Glass. Mm -hmm. and, um, the accompanying social media got a lot bigger than I ever expected. It took about four years to, to get from the initial idea to an actual show on the wall. But after that, it snowballed pretty quickly. You can hear more from Dr. Hamill in episode 49. I've been wanting to do this interview with Nikki for a while now, but I knew she was busy with the unseen exhibits, so I didn't want to bother her with something else. But I'm glad we finally found a time that we could do this. And uh, this was really interesting. Nikki's story is inspiring because it's all about knowing what you want to do and then figuring out what you need to do to get there and then doing the work, doing what it takes to get to where you want to go. And now she has a very popular exhibit at the Mütter Museum. And also when she was talking about taking photographs during the pandemic and just noticing the things around her, you know, the, the half full subway trains and things like that, that's being curious and observant. And, you know, being observant, that's what pathology is all about, right? I'll have links in the show notes to Nikki and all of her work. And if you happen to be in Philadelphia and you go to the Mütter Museum, check out the Unseen exhibit and let me know what you think. Or better yet, find Nikki on Twitter and let her know what you think. Don't forget, you can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path or connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.